Okay, so um, this morning um, we'll we'll have this is a one-off sermon. The next week we'll we'll start a new series, um, and it looks like and I've been you know poor David Dries. I've been debating with him what I'm going to preach from the New Testament, and so we've been going and going and going over it. And so the last time I told him is you know we're going to do an overview of the Gospels and key passages for discipleship through the Gospels. So that's where I'm still kind of guiding uh, guiding myself. So. Um, that's where we plan, but this morning, what I want to do is take you through the scriptures, and, and the reason I've got to do this is because at the close of service, we have a letter to read to you, the body, um, about um, a situation that you're all aware of, that we, will, we have reached the final phase of what we would call redemptive church discipline, and we need to read to you a letter uh, that these people received, and so that you understand where we're at as a church body and where to go from here. But in preparing to do that, uh, I want to make sure that we scripturally understand what redemptive discipline is, where we see it in the scripture. I want to kind of walk you through a little bit more in kind of a question and answer format. So here's what I'm, I'm, I'm answering. I'm answering a couple of questions this morning about redemptive church discipline. Notice I say the word redemptive. It's, it is never the goal of church discipline to kick people out. Can we all say yes and amen to that? It is not to kick people out. Right? That's not the goal. Um, there may be times where that discipline does call for that person no longer being a, in attendance. We'll discuss that later. It is not us kicking them out. It is us obeying what God's word says to help bring someone to repentance and faith. Sometimes I like to call redemptive church discipline course correction. Course correction, meaning you've, you were going in a direction and we're trying to steer you back on course. So we're going to talk about it. Here's some questions we're going to answer today. Question number one, why do redemptive church discipline as a church? Why do it? Why do it? Can't we just not do this? You might be thinking, I've been a part of churches where I've never heard of such a thing. Can't we just not do this? We'll answer that question. Number two, who decides what is disciplinable? Who decides this? What, you know, who, who's a deciding factor on this? Number three, I want to answer the question, how do we know we're doing the right thing? How do we know this is even right? What if we get it wrong? How do we know we're actually doing the right thing by doing this? Number four, does church discipline mean the disciplined member cannot come to public worship? That's a question. Does it mean they can't still come to public worship? That's another question. Question number five. If a disciplined member is to be treated like an unbelieving, unrepentant outsider, then why are unbelievers still allowed to come to the to church, groups, fellowship, but disciplined members are not? We'll answer that question, number five. Number six. Are disciplined members our enemies? Number seven. What happens if they do repent? What happens? What do we do if they do repent? The next, the last question, question number eight is, um, I'm sorry, it's next to last. Question number eight, will I be next? <laughs> like, are we, are we like the Gestapo running around here? Are we, are we putting bugs? Do you have some kind of like bug system that's bugging our phone as we leave here and you're listening to your conversations? Number nine, isn't church discipline something only a legalistic church would do? A legalistic church would do. So 
I think these questions should hopefully answer a lot of the bulk of questions that we'd have and think about this subject matter. And then um, at the end, we'll sing to the Lord. We'll come, we'll read the letter, and then we'll give you a chance to ask any clarifying questions. And we'll have our, our usual time of edify, have a meal together. And it's good to be with you guys today. So first, let me answer the first question. Why do church discipline as a church? Why do redemptive discipline? You'll hear me sometimes say that phrase, redemptive, just to help you understand discipline is not punitive, right, or course correction. When you and I discipline our kids, when we discipline them, we're not actually trying to punish them. We're actually trying to correct behavior. That's why we call it course correction. Everything a church does when they do redemptive discipline, they're trying to steer someone back into course. That's why before church discipline is, is done, for, typically the protocol is that you tell it to the church and give the church body a chance to help steer that person back on the course. But sometimes that does not result in them getting back on course as we had hoped. And so then the ultimate last phase of it will have to be done. But I want to answer this question, why do church discipline, number one? Well, we do church discipline because if a church does not do it, they are not a real church. They're not. They're not a real church. You can't call yourself a real church if this is not a part of your church. Just like you can't call yourself a church if you don't believe that the Word of God is God's Word and is sufficient. You can't be a real church if you do not do the ordinances. You cannot be a real church if you do not believe that Jesus Christ, uh, through faith and uh, through, through faith and the grace of God, that you have salvation. You can't be a real church, right? So it's something that a real church does. I would also say this, if you're not doing redemptive discipline, the word discipline is, has the idea of discipleship. This is a natural extension of discipleship. If a church does not administer redemptive discipline, it does not love its members, okay? If you're taking notes, you can see how God disciplines us. We see this in Hebrews 12 and verse 5 through 17. A parent that does not discipline their kids does not love their children. You hear people say, Spare the rod, spoil the child. That's actually not in Scripture. It's if you spare it, then you don't love your kids. A church that does not administer biblical church discipline is an enemy of the gospel. They are disobeying. The part of the gospel, the good news is Jesus saves us. And part of that salvation is he we are positionally forgiven of our sin. Then we practically start living like it, right? So a church that... that is has unholiness and knowing sin among ourselves that's of common report and we just kind of wink an eye at it and and celebrate it is a church that's actually no longer a church let me take you to a couple scriptures to prove my point why do church uh why why do church discipline as a church well some of these scriptures will come back to several times but look at matthew 18 we'll Revert back to this many times. But I want you to notice the use of the word church. And we find something interesting in Matthew 18, 15 through 18. You know this text. You've heard it. You'll hear it more. Now, if a brother sins, go and show him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, the ecclesia. That's the Greek word, the ecclesia. A local called out assembly here. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. 
So we see something interesting about an aspect of church life. We see discipline. Tell it to the church. We see a function of a church. Tell it to the church. A church is more than just the people that gather on Sunday for worship, although that's an essential part. A church also does discipline. A church also does outreach. A church also makes disciples. A church also does the ordinances. A church also has elders and leaders. But a church does discipline. So why do church discipline as a church? Well, because the scriptures talk about it and say it's a normal part of church, right? So we can't do something. We can't say, well, that's just something that we is just kind of awkward and doesn't make me feel fuzzy. Or we can interpret something and say, that's not loving because the Bible actually talks about it, right? So the Bible talks about it. You have to do it as a church. If you'll turn over to 1 Timothy 5.20, um, why do church discipline as a church? I want, you to note, I want you to notice something, that even, even those who are elders are not above it. Not even elders are above it. 1 Timothy Chapter 5, verse 20. We're going to be flipping through several passages, um, not camping down on them too long, but just giving you enough exposure so that you know it. 1 Timothy, chapter 5, and verse 20. It says, The elders who lead well are to be considered... We'll start in verse 19, actually. The elders, these are pastors who lead well, are considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor preaching the word and teaching. So here's an aspect of church. You've got to have elders that are laboring to preach and teach. And the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while it is threshing. The leader is worthy of his wages. So take care of your elders financially. Verse 19, do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses, which is don't cavalierly um, receive an accusation. Don't talk bad. Don't say, well, I heard that my elders or my pastors were doing such and such, that kind of malicious gossip. You need to have witnesses. You don't throw accusations against anybody, but especially elders. It's a very serious thing. You don't go online. We see this a lot where people go online with the littlest bit of gossip and they'll promote it against any kind of religious pastor figure. But notice it says this in context. Those who continue in sin reprove in the presence of all so that the rest will also be fearful. Now, in verse 20, contextually, who's this actually talking about? Elders. Even elders. It says the elders to the congregation that is called to give them double honor, right? In verse 17 through 18, to not receive a false accusation against them, to have the two or three witnesses if there's going to be an accusation of of, of a violation of 1 Timothy 3 and the moral character traits of their life. Verse 20, those who continue in sin, reprove in the presence of who? Of all. That's the church. So we see even here, elders can, can have a place where they need redemptive discipline. In fact, I'd make a case that discipline actually travels faster and quicker with those who are pastors and elders because they have so much more accountability and authority and God brings a swifter judgment, as we see, to those who are going to be teachers of the word. But we see reprove in the presence of all. 
with the church. Now, I, I don't have time to just go exhaustively, but just a couple of couple opening texts here. Why do church discipline as a church? Because the scriptures clearly show that that is something that a church does from a member to those who are in the highest offices of pastor, elder. No one is exempt from this. Yes and amen? Okay, now, question number two. Who decides what is disciplinable? Who decides it? Right? Well, the right answer is Nick decides because he is the pope of Collierville Bible Church, right? He walks around. What he binds is bound in heaven. What he looses, you know, I'm speaking sarcastically. Hopefully you know that. Who decides what is uh, disciplinable? I I would tell you this. um, The Word of God does. That's what decides. The Word of God does, right? What God's Word decides is what it calls for. Now, I would say this. We see in Scripture that we need to have accurate witnesses, and those witnesses' testimonies need to corroborate. We need to make sure when church discipline is done sloppy without proper witnesses, you do understand in the history of the church, people have done church discipline in a sloppy manner. They've done it in a way, I mean, there have been pastors who have, who have led a church into disciplining somebody, and really that pastor just had an axe to grind and wanted to go after somebody. We do know that that has happened in church history, right? Just because man does something sinful and wrong and doesn't follow God's standard doesn't mean we just throw it all out. So let's look at a couple different ways. Um, Who decides what is disciplinable? The scriptures do. But we see some templates of it. One, we see this. When a Christian sins against another Christian and will not repent and reconcile, that's the scriptures have decided that that is disciplinable. Once again, you're back in Matthew 18. If you look at Matthew 18, don't you see that really, although this is a, a great text to layer out a a template for discipline, when you look contextually, really this is dealing with the issue of unforgiveness, right? So I would say this, who decides what is disciplinable? The scriptures do. And one particular area is when a Christian sins against another Christian and will not repent and reconcile. Did you know that's a disciplinable? In our discipling relationships, if there's someone who is unrepentant and you've worked with them one-on-one and then they're still in resistance and then you go get two or three witnesses, it actually does have a, a, a methodology of going all the way to the church. Look back in the text of Matthew 18. Don't you see it? Now, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. We see the one-on-one interaction here. There's been a sin against another brother. They go, they try to reconcile it. But if he's not listened to you, take one or two more, verse 16, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Do you see this is the interpersonal relationship? Let me layer this out an example. Husband and wife, something goes on between them. He's offended her. He repents. He confesses. There's a change of heart, change of life. And she says, I will not forgive you. I am bitter towards you. Moving out, we're separating, that's it, right? He keeps trying, he keeps trying. And then if that doesn't work, do you know what he should do? He should go get two or three witnesses. He should let them hear the story. Maybe he's missed something. And then she comes to the table and they try to help them reconcile. If in this situation she were to remain unforgiving and bitter towards him, that's actually something that eventually through time and and corroborating the witness testimony would actually go up to a discipline. It should actually be normal that we would discipline someone who would be unforgiving after all the witnesses have corroborated 
over a great space of time. Are y'all understanding me? So we see this in lots of different areas, but the scripture is the one that outlines this kind of idea of redemptive discipline. By the way, discipline is never run in too quickly or haphazardly. Um, it is to be prayed through. The scriptures would be consulted, but the scriptures decide what is disciplinable, and it speaks towards it. Many different situations. Here's another situation. A Christian lives a destructive sin habitually without repentance after much admonishment. So Matthew 18 really gives a protocol of between two people, but what if someone is living in a wanton, openly defiant of the moral standards of the scripture? Look at 1 Corinthians 5. We'll see that. This is another protocol of scripture of how to handle discipline. And this, although you you would still use Matthew 18, 15 through 18 as a uh, template, I would also say some things actually travel a lot faster, right? When you're dealing between two people in unreconciliation and forgiveness, that that takes a lot of different angles and try, and that can take a while. Some things actually go really quick. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you can see this, it, verse 1. Here's another different type of church discipline, a different route and manner, but still the scriptures have decided. Verse 5, chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality. Notice it says it is actually reported, meaning everybody knows about it, that there is sexual immorality among you, a sexual morality of a kind that does not exist, even among the Gentiles, um, that someone has his father's wife. So someone was sleeping with his stepmother, right? And the church was celebrating it. They were declaring this idea of, look, look what liberty we have in Christ, right? Our sins are forgiven, therefore we can even sin. God has permissively allowed us to do this. He says in verse 2, you have become prideful, puffed up, and have not mourned instead. So the one who has done this deed would be, what does it say? Removed from your midst. This person, this person can't be among you anymore. They have corrupted, infected the church with their sins, so much so that the church is now celebrating it. The church is doing nothing about it. In this text, they were doing nothing about it. Paul comes in and says, the scriptures decide what is disciplinable. Verse 3, he says, For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who is so committed this as though I were present. Paul says this is pretty clear. This is pretty plain. This is a violation of God's standards for those that call him his, their Lord. Verse 4, in the name of the Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, right? We're talking about the church, right? The assembled, and I, with you in spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus, deliver such a one to who? To Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So Paul says this person has got to be removed from the church, not even among you, because those that are in the church, there's a protection from Satan, the covenant body. You're moving them outside of the covenant body. You, as a membership judge within the body, God is judging those outside of the body. You turn him over to Satan so that he can realize what he's lost as a result of his sin and will come back to the Lord, right? That's why we call it redemptive discipline. Just a side note. Ask ourselves this question. If we were disciplined today, would we even miss our church? Like, how do you know you're really involved in your church? How do you know you're really a member of your church? This 
this body should mean something so much so that if you didn't have it, it would be a severe loss to your soul in life. My fear is actually most people have so much, only have so much invested in their church that they could actually change churches pretty easily. They, if they were disciplined, it would just be like, well, I'll just go somewhere else. No big deal, right? But no, actually, it should mean something. So much so that when you lose it, you would feel like, well, I am turned over to Satan. I am cast out. I am an outcast. Something is missing. I, like, now I see tangibly that I've lost the Lord way before. Now that I've lost fellowship, the sweet fellowship I enjoyed with my body. Keep reading verse 6. Remember, we're just answering question number two. Who decides what is disciplinable? The scriptures. Paul says in verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? He just says, you're boasting about keeping this person in your church and not disciplining this and being okay and just celebrating this as if there's some Christian liberty to walk around in sin. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump just as you are, in fact, unleavened for Christ. Our Passover lamb also was sacrificed. He says, you know, a little yeast will, infe- will, will spread, so will a little bit of sin. Now, in this particular situation, we see that this person actually is not even allowed to attend that assembly anymore. We'll discuss later about the issue that some actually who are disciplined can still attend as an unbeliever. Those who can't, it's because their sin is such a level of unrepentance and infection that they would actually infect the body. So there has to be some functional calls on whether a person can still attend the assembly when disciplined. So he says in verse 8, Therefore let us celebrate the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Verse 9, I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people. He's referring back, right, to the one that they're just disciplining for sleeping with his stepmother. I do not at all mean that the sexually immoral people of the world or with, uh, or with the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, for then you would go out of the world. But now I'm writing you not to associate with any so-called brother. By the way, when you discipline somebody, um, we are declaring them functionally an unbeliever. They still could be. And if they were, they'll repent and return. It's not a question of, if they will, but when will they, if they're a genuine believer? They will come to repentance. If they don't, then they never actually were to begin with. But when a person is disciplined, we, they may still be a brother, but the most they are at that point is a so-called brother. Meaning, there's a question mark. You might not be a Christian. When you're disciplined by a church that has done it right and gone through the right protocols, you have to consider, I may... Be a so-called Christian. I might not be a real Christian. If all the witnesses and the evidence corroborates itself together, and it's clearly plain from Scripture, I might be a so-called brother. Verse 11. If he is sexually immoral, greedy, an idolater, a reviler, this is, a, this is like someone who we would call a verbal abuser, or drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. By the way, just a side note, the scriptures don't wink an eye at drunkenness, right? If that's in our lives, that's actually disciplinable, right? So, like, for instance, um, I mean, can we all admit that alcohol is, a, is an issue, right? In our, are, are we all aware of this, right? Okay. That even in the church, if there's a church member who has given themselves over to 
drunkenness. There's no repentance ongoing. Even that needs to get exposed in their community. And we need to actually even help that person come to faith and repentance or turn them over to Satan so that there could be a repentance and a renewal in coming back to the Lord. Now, listen, I'm not a teetotaler or anything like that. I'm using a, you know, teetotaler. I'm not a person that says you can't drink alcohol at all, right? There's liberty. There's a lot of, there's a lot of um, restrictions around how you use that liberty to drink alcohol. But I will tell you this. Enslavement to alcohol, becoming a drunkard, is clearly a violation of Scripture and it's something actually that is disciplinable, right? So we even see this in the text, right? Then he says this, verse 12, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Are you not to judge those who are within the church? What does Paul say? The church body judges those in the church, according to what the scriptures say. Look at verse 13. For those who are outside, who does it say judges them? God will judge. Remove that wicked person from among yourselves. So in this case, this person was unrepentant, openly ex- openly influencing and infecting the church body with their sin. So in this particular situation, they disciplined him, but he was not allowed to even be a part of the fellowship, enjoy, he wasn't able to enjoy even the public declaration of the word, right? So the scriptures decide what is disciplinable and in certain situations, a person may and may not. For instance, um, I'm answering a question a little bit too ahead of myself. I'll, I'll answer more about that particular issue later. Now, if you're taking notes um, and you're wanting to kind of look, we're not going to go through all of them, but there are other situations. For instance, when a Christian continually blasphemes God, well, why not? Let's just turn to it, right? Okay, First Timothy. I can't go through all of them because it would just we'd stay just on this one question, but... There are different types of situations that the scriptures speak into need dis- require discipline. But the scriptures is the one that speak into it. Let's say one is continually blaspheming God. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18 through 20. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18 through 20 says this. This I command, I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made, Concerning you, that you may fight with fight with a good fight, that you may fight the good fight. Verse nineteen: Keep faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected, suffered shipwreck in their faith, regarding to their faith. Among are whom Hymenius and Alexander, whom I have handed over to. What does he say? Just like we saw the discipline of First Corinthians five, so that they may be taught not to. Blaspheme. In this situation, these particular men were blaspheming God, right? Don't know particularly what they were doing, but they were bringing a blasphemy against God. And they were more than likely some kind of heretical teaching. And they were put out, turned over to Satan. When we discipline, we're turning someone over to Satan. So they realize what they've lost in the covenant body of the church, the fellowship they've lost, the fellowship with God. We're wanting, they're putting outside and they, they're hopefully they realize what they've lost and want back in. That's something. Yes. Yeah, I would say it's a both and. 
So you're turning it over to Satan as in you are now in the realm of outside the covenant body. Now, is that always directly Satan himself because he's one person at one time in one place? Probably not. But are you getting turned over to the principalities and powers and rulers of this world? Yes. So yeah, it could be about you. Technically, yes. It's Satan because it says it in the text. But you're really turning to his sphere of influence. Now, I'm not to say Satan, the one person, can do whatever he wants. He can infect and go after just one person. But yeah, more than likely, we're dealing with the hordes of principalities, powers, spiritual rulers, darkness. You understand what I'm saying? Good question. So here's some other areas now you can take notes. When a Christian encourages, debates, or promotes false doctrine, you can write down Galatians 1, 6 through 9. That's another type of discipline the scriptures talk about. We are read this to you earlier when a pastor elder is in moral sin or doctrinal error. James 3, 1, 1 Peter 5, 19 through 11. When a Christian is divisive, we see that protocol, we see that in Titus 3, 10 through 11. When a Christian is a busybody, an idle busybody, we see 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 11. When a Christian is a busybody, a gossip. You even know the scriptures talk about a Christian who is a gossip. Actually, there is a, that is a disciplinable issue. So the scriptures decide this, right? So it's the scriptures, it's not man. Now we're responsible to obey God's word, but, but I want you to understand, when we do discipline in our church, no one's giddy about it. It's for redemption, and we don't have any right to not do what God has called us to do. Now, here's the deal. Some people will say this. Well, Nick, there's so many other people with sin. How come y'all aren't disciplining those people? And I would tell you this, because it didn't get exposed, right? You can only do with what actually gets exposed. And honestly, a lot of discipline happens way ahead of time. The one-on-one is church discipline. A lot of stuff gets handled one-on-one. Some stuff gets handled two to three. It gets handled, uh, you know, it only makes its way. But discipline actually happens when another sister and it when two sisters in the Lord, when one sister sees another sister straying from the Lord and she decides to show up at her house or make a phone call or sit down with her and try to bring some correction because she saw how she talked to her children the last time or saw her display sinful anger, that's discipline, right? It's just heading it off. Actually, a church should, that's why we would need to be in relationships and discipling relationships so it gets headed off ahead of time. That's why we counsel each other in the body of Christ. That's why we go to ladies' retreats and men's breakfasts and men theology studies and small groups and classes and we have meals together and we sit by people and we sit by different people and not the same people every week so that people get, I mean, like, things get known, sin gets exposed. Okay, number three. How does the last phase of church discipline work? If you look back at Matthew 18, you'll see a couple things. Here's the last phase. We'll bring you back to it. Are y'all okay? Y'all still with me? Okay. Okay. If you said you are. This is a little bit more of a teaching intensive, but I kind of think you need this teaching today so you understand why we're doing what we're doing. So, verse 18, um, verse 17 it says if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. To them is the two to three witnesses. 
And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let to him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector, right? A Gentile and tax collector. A Gentile was a person who was disobedient, was outside the covenant people of God. Tax collector would be someone who was despised in their society, one who um, basically took advantage of people and was, were known for being devious and evil people. You're basically taking that person and you're removing them from the covenant body. As you saw in 1 Corinthians 5, that person is being turned over to Satan. That's what happens on this last phase. Uh, they're being turned over. They're being given over. Um, we find this response, like we saw earlier in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 7. Um, and now do this. Turn over to 2 Thessalonians 3.15. 2 Thessalonians 3.15. Once a person is disciplined, they're not our enemies. They're enemies of the gospel. Second Thessalonians, I think, says something that's really helpful. Second Thessalonians 3.15. We'll start in verse 14, actually. Second Timothy 3. I'm sorry, Second Thessalonians 3.14. And if anyone does not obey the word in this letter, take special note of that person not to associate with him so that he will be put to shame. And yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So a person who is in this letter disobedient to this letter that Paul, we're getting to a disciplinable issue. You don't treat him as an enemy. Um, They're a so-called brother, but they're not an enemy. They're an enemy of the gospel, but they're not your enemy. So when a church disciplines somebody, if you see those people walking around town, don't go to the opposite side of the street and just ignore them. You see them, you can still treat them like any, you know, person made in God's image, right? You wouldn't be rude to anybody else. If there's a conversation, your conversation is that of repentance. That conversation is either repentance of what their sin is, or it's, let me talk the gospel message to you. Your conversation might even be like, hey... We do miss you. Has God changed? Has God changed anything in your life since the discipline? I'd love to hear about it. And if it's not, you could say, hey, could I just pray into your ear real quick, just a prayer for you? And in that moment, you could pray a great prayer such as, hey, I pray that the covenant jealous God, the covenant jealousy that God has for his people, the church, I pray that you'd experience the same jealousy for your wife or the same jealousy for your husband, a godly jealousy. Yes and amen. You understand, that's how you, even after you've put them out, they're not coming to your church, or depending on the severity and the level of their sin, or they're kind of sticking their heel in the ground and trying to twist scripture to justify their sin, if they were allowed to still at least attend like an unbeliever, that would be the prayers. Actually, um, I've been in situations where we discipline somebody, and we allow them still to come and attend, but their posture, when I've seen that, was... I know I'm doing wrong. Scripture says this is wrong. I'm just loving my sin more than the Savior. Lord, help me. Can I still just still continue to come and hear the public preaching of the word? And we, we, you know, took away communion, small groups, group life, fellowship, all those kind of things. And we allow them to still come as long as they didn't flaunt their sin or start to kind of start to twist and maneuver and try to infect the body. We were willing to go like, yeah, come and People in the church, and, this, and these are a couple of these situations, 
they would still have conversations. Each time they came, it was great. They would get to go, hey, has God done any change in your life? They get to pray sweet prayers into their ears, right? You understand? That's how you treat them after. Let, let me answer the next question. How do we know we're doing the right thing? Go back to Matthew 18. Ooh, what if we're doing the wrong thing? What if we're being mean? You know, what if, what if you, you know, are listening to a, listening to a late night radio program? I'm just using this name because this is the only one I know that fits. What if you're listening to a, a late night television program and they're having call in questions for Joel Osteen? Right, I'm just using, you know, this is a hypothetical here, right? And, you know, you're kind of wondering, did my church do the right thing? And you call in and you go, Joe, you know, hey, I love your smile and I hear you can bench press 300 pounds, right? I'm so impressed. Um, he really can, by the way. And, hey, listen, I just, we did this thing, we disciplined someone in our church, and did we do the right thing? And then, more than likely, you know, he wouldn't answer that question or just go on or just flash a pretty smile and just, you know, you know, tell you how great people really are anyways. And we should just all love each other and not, you know, not be so hard on each other. Something of that nature, right? But here's the truth. Doesn't matter what anybody thinks. What is God's word said? So if you look in chapter 18, verse 17, verse, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church... Let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Now look at verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything that they ask, it shall be done for them, my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst. A lot of people take this section as, oh, God's there when you do a small study. If two or three people, God's there. The context really is, if a church follows the text of Scripture and disciplines according to the text of Scripture, they are, in verse 18, declaring heaven's will, right? If the person has repentance and they receive them back in, they are doing heaven's will. What's bound in heaven is bound in earth here. And God, in the midst of the witnesses who brought this issue forward, God is in the midst of this. He is blessing it. So how do we know a church is doing this right? If they do it right, according to Scripture, then heaven has said, you're doing my will. Don't worry about what people say outside the church. Worry about, be concerned with, did we follow the Scriptures? And you're now doing heaven's will. Jesus is in the midst of you when you do this, right? That's how we know we're doing the right thing. Next question. How does church, uh, does church discipline mean the disciple member cannot come to public worship. Does it mean that they cannot come to public worship? I would say this. It all depends on the situation. As you saw earlier in 1 Corinthians 5, actually, turn back over there. I'll just show you. You see clearly this person is not coming in among the church body in 1 Corinthians 5. They're not attending anymore. We don't see that. Go back over to 1 Corinthians 5. Man, we're getting a good rain, aren't we? Just imagine all that green grass that's going to spring up. Or green weeds, whatever the case may be. 
He says, in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 5, But now I'm writing to you not to associate with any so-called brother, if he is sexually immoral, or greedy, or idolater, reviler, drunkard, swindler, not even to eat with such a one, right? Not even to eat. So there's an issue of you put them completely outside the body and there's no, there's no fellowship with them. Um, and their sin is so infectious and spread, they're not even invited to come and sit among the congregation. Go over to Romans chapter 16. Romans 16, let me show you another text of scripture. Romans 16 and verse 17 says this. Now I urge you, brothers, to keep your eye on those who cause dissension and stumblings contrary to the teaching you have learned and turn away from them. Right? Do you see this? Turn away from them. So there's, in this situation, someone's causing stumbling and dissensions and turn away from them. We see that, turn over to 1 Corinthians 14. The question gets asked, though, can a person ever attend? Yeah. For instance, you see in 1 Corinthians 14, evidently unbelievers were among the Corinthian church. If you look at 1 Corinthians 14, and go down to verse 23. Now, the text is speaking about tongues. It's speaking about interpreting tongues. It's speaking that if, if tongues are used in the church, there needs to be someone to interpret because an unbeliever could be there. How are they going to know and say yes and amen unless someone interprets? That's the context that's going on but so let me read it for you but let me help you understand a principle therefore he says in verse 23 if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues and uninformed men or unbelievers enter will they not say that you are out of your mind so then he goes on to say in verse 24 25 just use words that everybody understands right don't glorify yourself don't use don't they were trying to think that tongues was the most was the best gift to have. And he's like, man, just speak clear words of these unbelievers. Now, what I want you to see is unbelievers were coming to the Corinthian church. But remember back in 1 Corinthians 5, there was a believer who called himself a believer, promoted openly what he was doing, infected the church in such a way that it was celebrated his sin of sleeping with his stepmother, right? And God says, put him out. So what we see is this. Can a church, once they discipline somebody, allow those people to, to still attend? It depends on the situation. Some situations, yes. Some situations, no. So there have been situations um, where, where it has been said to someone who's disciplined, you can't come even because you are entrenched in your sin, you are claiming it's right, you are justifying it, and you are declaring that God says this is okay that person would not be able to continue to be among us. We would be called to completely not even eat with them, right? There may be some that are like, yeah, I've been disciplined, I'd, and you've done the right thing. This is the right thing. I love my sin more than my Savior. I'm scared. I need to hear, I need to hear the good news still. The discipline was right, but I'm just not changed, right? That person, that, that exists. And that person, we would say, in most situations, Yes, amen. Come and be among us. You know, you still need, God's people still need to cross your path, need to pray words of repentance and faith. You need, you, it's possible you're not a believer. So go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. So the next question is this. What happens if they do repent? Man, what happens if they do repent? 
Nick, no one's ever going to do this. No one's ever going to repent. Oh, really? They actually will. We see an example in Scripture. Now, the person that's referencing in 2 Corinthians, this is a person who was disciplined by the church. Some think it may be the guy from 1 Corinthians 5. Some would say, looking at the text, that this man had openly, this person had openly talked about the Apostle Paul, his ministry, and was a divisive person in that Corinthian church. I'm not really, I don't really know, but I do know this. He had actually repented. And actually, the Corinthian church in the text had not kind of realized there's a part that they must do now at this point. They had put him out, and honestly, they had done a really good job at it, right? This dude is repenting, and they weren't realizing they now had a responsibility to, to him as he was repenting. Look in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul says in verse 5, If any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say so much to all of you. So speaking of this person, Paul's forgiven him for what he's done towards Paul in his ministry. Paul is now saying he's done it to you. Then he says in verse 6, Sufficient for such a one is this punishment that was inflicted by the majority. So he says, you've disciplined, you put him out. Well, it's sufficient. You've gone as far. He's repented. Look what he says now in verse 7. So on the contrary, you should rather graciously forgive and comfort him, lest such a one be swallowed up with excessive sorrow. Therefore, I encourage you to reaffirm your love for him. So if a church ever disciplines somebody, right, and they repent and come back, we should throw huge parties. I'm talking, let's go grab the fatted calf that's out in the woods, or the deer, right? Kill the deer in the backwoods, strip out the back strap, chicken fry it, you know, some cream gravy, like go full bore on it, right? And just like celebrate. It's not like a, like they just show up, you know, like, oh, good to see you. I hadn't seen you in a while, you know, come sit down, you know. It's like, let's have a party because what they're thinking as they come back in is no one likes us, right? And we would say, no, actually, we liked you so much. We were and loved you so much. We were willing to discipline, right? A parent that will not discipline their kids does not love their kids. We don't discipline our kids because we, in pride, we want our kids to like us, right? God didn't call us to be likable. God's called us to be faithful. So that's how we handle it. If a person repents, we will throw the biggest party that's ever had. The next question is, will I be next? Well, look at Hebrews chapter 13. Will I be next? As I've already showed you earlier, we could all be next. I could be next. In fact... Things travel up the pipe stream for me as a pastor even quicker. And I say that just to say this. Here's why everybody ought to be a member of a church. Ought to be a member of a good church, a solid church. I would say this. If you've been coming to our church for years and you're not a member, you need to become a member because we can't do redemptive discipline with you unless you are a member, right? We can't do it, right? Now, if you're an unbeliever coming or you're a person that's a non-member who's coming but you cause dissension, we can prohibit you from coming, but, you know, if you're bringing active heresy as a non-member. But most non-members just come and they take part. But if something happens in your life, there's no teeth for us to go forward. So, for instance, if you're married, right? Let's say you get married and you're wondering, like, man, what hope do I have that what if our marriage starts going bad, that anybody has teeth in this? 
I would say become members of Collierville Bible Church, right? Like have, be teeth. Because like if, if let's say the husband is sinning against the wife in such a way that she has um, brought it to his attention, tried to bring about repentance, it hasn't happened, and she brings it to us, we now start the process and we're now doing God's process. You can't do that in a non-member. That's why I would encourage you to be a member. Be someone who has committed to that covenant, to the covenant body. Look at Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Speaking of elders, it says in chapter 13, verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account, so that they will do this with joy and not with groaning, for this would be unprofitable for you. So will I be next? Well, if you're in biblical community and there's unrepentance, and it gets exposed, then yeah, we could all be next. I could be next. And I want to put this as an understanding. You don't understand that none of us are above sin, right? You understand that? As strong as all of us think we are, we're one day away from acting like pagans. We really are. And to think that you're, any of us are that much better is not to have full realization of the deceitfulness of sin. It's not to have full realization of the old sin nature. Now, in Christ... The new creation, when our, as our minds are renewed, we won't go towards that. But we can live a life where we're not ha- constantly being renewed by the word. Let me say this again. You and I can live lives where we're not constantly being renewed by the word. For instance, if the only time this word is even being cracked in our life, in six days a week we're not, and then one day a week we are, and we're not even really interested in opening the text, and we're like, instead of even using our phone, we're like scrolling through whatever whatever news events are happening for the day, I would tell you, friend, you're not, your mind's not being renewed by the word. And as crazy as you think someone else's sin may be that's getting disciplined, my friend, you just have not been put in the right circumstance yet where the same thing can happen to you. It happened to all of us. The Bible wouldn't warn even elders that it could happen to them if it wasn't a reality that could happen. So the last thing is this. Is church discipline something a legalistic church would do? And I would say this, that word legalistic, when it comes to the theology world, that word legalistic means you earn your salvation by doing good works. And you can say, that's legalism, theologically. You are, earning, you are earning salvation by your good works. That's what a legalistic person. I please God, I please God for salvation by the things I do. I merit God's salvation. That's legalistic. So no, by theological definition, what a church is doing is not legalistic when we do this, right? What it's called is biblical. Right? It's something that we do. And in the end, I can tell you this. We do all this for the glory of his name. Jesus has a bride. It's the church. Jesus, in Ephesians chapter 5, washes his bride with the water of the word. Jesus expects his bride to not only be positionally holy because of the finished work of the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. He doesn't expect his bride to just experience this. Well, my sins are forgiven in heaven and Now I have the forgiveness of my sins and I can be with Jesus. He wants more than just that positional, that positional forgiveness of sins that happens at salvation. He wants practical, practical to say no to sin and yes to him. So that those who've said yes to Jesus are day in, day out being transformed, renewed in his image and living out salvation practically. That's what he wants for us. And his instrument, one of his many instruments is redemptive discipline. And I pray that our church body will let this be a time where it brings greater fear 
You know what I've loved about our body this time that we've spoken into this? It has brought a greater fear and awareness of, of where I struggle in sin. And I've te- heard many testify in our church, even myself. And that's a good thing. We should fear sin. We should fear sin. And this should bring a holiness. As I end, do you remember Ananias and Sapphira when they lied to the Holy Spirit? They were disciplined and there was great fear that came on the church. That's what happens as a result of this. The fear of God should be in our... Like, for instance, if, if we're actively involved in sin, which is sinful anger towards people in our life, and we're constantly going after it, we should fear God. Giving ourselves over to drunkenness, we should fear God. Giving ourselves over to unforgiveness and bitterness, we should fear God. Giving ourselves over to gossip and busybodiness, busybodiness, we should fear God. Giving ourselves over to idleness where we won't work, we should fear God. Giving ourselves over to pornography and sexual immorality, we should fear God. All these things are things that should help us. So I don't ever want us to do this again. But I do trust God's purpose is to make a holy church. And so that's what God's doing here. Let's stand to our feet and have a time of prayer. We're going to sing a song to the Lord. If you're not in Jesus this morning, I would implore you. I say, I would tell you this. Acts 17 commands you. Trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior. If you're here, the message of the gospel is being rung out. The best thing that God wants you to do is repent. Trust him for salvation. Would you pray with me? We love you because you first loved us. And would you help us from here? We need to get sober about our sin and holiness. May this drive us away from the hypocrisy that we can easily try to proclaim. And may we fear and love you even more. May you drive holiness and drive a new sense of community in our body. God's people said, amen.